Welcome back to Supreme Myths after a little bit of spring break break. Uh, I am so delighted today to welcome Professor Jennifer Taub um, from the Western New England School of Law. Uh, Professor Taub went to Yale undergraduate and Harvard Law School. She's a former professor at the University of Vermont. She uh, visited at Harvard Law School in 2019. She is a leading expert on white-collar crime, corporate governance, banking issues, the 2008 crisis, and all kind, and Twitter, which we might get to, and all kinds of other things. Uh, her most recent book, Big Dirty Money, The Shocking uh, Injustice and Unseen Costs of White-Collar Crime, has gotten rave reviews, including in the New York Times. Congratulations to that. Uh, welcome, Jennifer. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I, I know you're right there in downtown Atlanta, and I'd really rather be there than up here in New England, where we're having another fake spring moment, and undoubtedly it will snow any day now. So yes, uh, my my actually my parents moved to Boston in, in when I was a senior in college, and I was at Emory at the time, and left here one spring on about this day, and it was seventy five degrees and sunny. Arrived in Boston, it was one, and that wasn't windshield. <laughs> that was the cold. It was one. Anyway, um, let's start talking about your fantastic new book, and, and it's such a great title, which I'm going to repeat. Big Dirty Money, The Shocking Injustice and Unseen Costs of White Collar Crime. So, Can I interject before yeah. the question? You'll, I know you're ready, building up for a question, but I want to let your listeners know that um, when the paperback edition comes out in June, there'll be a new subtitle, which oh. I think is even better. So let me tell you that. So the title will still be Big Dirty Money, but the subtitle is Making White Collar Criminals Pay. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, I like that. Um, and let me just say, before I get into my questions, you are the first academic guest I've had. I've had I've had priests and producers, but you're the first academic guest I have who is not a con law person. So I am going to tell my entire audience, whether that's one or however many people, that I know very little about what we're going to talk about. So I am going to be educated by you, um, and I'm going to learn a lot from you, and will probably interrupt less than I normally do which is my normal thing, because I don't, I'm going to admit that I'm dying to learn about this stuff. So let's start with a very easy question, I think. What is white collar crime? That gets a definition of white collar crime. Oh my God, that's the hardest question. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Quite literally. And, and thank you. I, I appreciate that. Whenever I, sometimes my work does intersect with constitutional law um, in, the, in the, um, the corporate governance space. Um, sure. But uh, I will tell you, I never, I always disclaim any understanding or study of constitutional law. So it's nice to be on the other side of this. So here's the problem. You would think that the term white collar crime would be something easy to define because everybody talks about it. But in reality, there is absolutely no shared definition of this term, even within the legal field, even within criminology, wow. the subset of sociology, even federal among federal prosecutors, even um, at the FBI. So does that mean we can't talk about it? No. But actually, this, the sort of first chapter of the book after the introduction, which kind of gives the kind of overview of the problem, in the first chapter, I talk about the origin of the term and how I'm kind of trying to define it in the book and how to measure it. So if you want, I will start there. Yes, and yes, no, yes, yes. Okay, so this is... This is utterly fascinating because I'm somebody who firmly believes you can't manage what you don't measure. So we're in a very difficult- You would hate constitutional law, by the way. 
What? <laughs> you would hate constitutional law. You can't measure anything in constitutional law, but go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> but it's still, okay, you're right. I mean, I, I actually have always been somebody who preferred code classes. Yeah. To, although I consider constitutional law kind of a cross between the feeling of a code class and a common law class, because at least you have text. You have text you can start with. Yeah. Even if no, you know, I was an English major during the time of deconstruction, and we said things like language only approximates meaning. So I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate the struggle of constitutional law scholars because they don't even agree upon right. the lens they're going to look at the words. Okay, right. so yes. But if you want to, if you're someone like me who, you know, has goals toward measuring and some kind of empiricism, it's very difficult to look at, look at um, white collar crimes. So let's start with the history of the term. The term was coined by a sociologist from Indiana University by the name of Edwin Sutherland. And it was first introduced in a, in a paper or a talk he gave at the annual meeting of um, the American Sociological Society in Philadelphia in December of 1939. It was actually a joint meeting with the um, American Economics Association, which is kind of interesting. But it's, 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 you know, he's saying goodbye. It's his farewell speech in December. And the title of his talk is um, on white collar criminality. Okay. Not, he does, the, his later book, a decade later, is called White Collar Crime. And he gives this talk and it actually made the newspapers across the country, which is kind of shocking in academic talk to do that. Um, and it was because he was, tr he used this, I'll, I'll tell you his definition and I'll tell you why his, his talk was so revolutionary. The definition he uses for, for white collar crime or white collar criminal is somebody um, of respectability and high social status who in the course of their occupation commits offenses. And I'm almost verbatim with how he frames the term. And so we need to kind of start with this, the sentence structure there. He leads his definition with status and then ends with conduct. So he's saying, first, the universe are these high level, respectable people, high social standing. And the kinds of crime, he didn't say crime, he says, you know, offenses. Let me talk about that in a moment. Committed in the course of their occupation. Okay. So what, is, what does that mean? Um, it evolved even over the decade between his speech in 1939 and his book called White Collar Crime that he published in 1949. Um, what, what he means, the other piece of the word, when, he, when I talk about offenses and their occupation, he's talking about mostly financially related offenses. And, but the initial talk seemed to focus on the individual white collar criminal. And he was talking mostly as sort of about businessmen and robber barons. Remember, this is 1939. So he's looking backward to the early 20th century. But in his book, which is often forgotten, called White Collar Crime, the, almost the entire book is about corporate crime. And interesting. And in fact, the book was, um, we call it now redacted, but his publisher refused to allow him. They were worried about being sued by these major corporations of the day for defamation. So they made him um, redact the names, just use you know, dummy names like company A, B, C, what have you, and actually take out an entire chapter. And it wasn't until the early 80s that Yale University Press published the whole book, the uncut version. Okay. So in the book, which is, is where he studies these companies in the early 20th century, he's talking about things like antitrust violations, He's talking about non-criminal 
categories like civil trademark and uh, patent violations, industrial accidents, union busting, and the like. Um, so that's so. I, what what I would say is this is where he leaves it. I'll talk about the revolutionary thing in a moment, but that's where he leaves the definition. But literally, like six months after his book comes out, and it's you know he, it's hugely praised. It was reviewed in the Yale Law Journal. People thought this was revolutionary. Again, I'll talk about why that was. But then he dies tragically, walking Sad. his way. It's terrible, right? He, he die. It's terrible to die anyway, early in life. Yeah. But he's just given birth to this whole new field and doesn't get to see what happens. And so the whole definition splinters. Lawyers, we fall in. It, we fall into the camp of defining white collar crime based on conduct. So if you look at the case book I have on white collar crime. Um, I'm a co-author with Kathleen Brickey posthumously, uh, but that book looks at particular federal offenses in the, you know, in the use in the um, U.S. Code enacted by Congress for the most part, overlaid with some, you know, cases like Supreme Court cases that deal with the constitutionality of some of these statutes. But for the most part, when we teach white collar crime, we're saying here are the statutes that federal prosecutors, sometimes state prosecutors, use to go after people who connect, commit economic crime. So we, when we teach white collar crime, most people leave out status entirely and just think about, oh, white collar crime as a category of things, mostly centering around fraud, mostly centering, I would say, around the mail fraud and wire fraud statutes, which are just like, you're a lawyer, so lawyers listening. It's basically like mail fraud is just a definition of common law fraud, but for the jurisdictional hook, you add on use of the mail or use of the courier, right? Um, it's a little trickier than that because there's not really a uh, mens rea in the this old statute. Wire fraud is similar, but now you're using the internet, you're using the phone sure. and so on. So that's just basically, you know, criminalizing, you know, either common law, criminal fraud. or. So Jennifer, you know, can, I, can I stop you for one second? So if, if I'm if I am a 25 year old criminal who's not yet been very successful <laughs> and I'm sitting in my basement and I commit wire fraud, um, uh, mail fraud, all kinds of fraud that leads to economic gain that I get through my fraud on the Internet. Money, even if you don't make money, yes. If you deprive someone else of money or property, even if you yeah. end up losing. Do you yes, consider right. that 25-year-old in the basement a white-collar criminal? Um, he would be prosecuted for the white. He would be considered a white-collar criminal, as would someone who commits welfare fraud today. That doesn't make sense. Okay, so, so to me, we need some. Okay, so off the bat, that bothers me. <laughs> well, okay, so let me, just, let me just back up. I'm going to get you to the counting. This is the you I. I like clean categories. I like to take the chaos and turn it into order. So we get this definition from Sutherland. So what does this mean? Like I said, lawyers, we tend to say, okay, here are the elements of the statute. If you want to prosecute someone successfully, here's what you need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. That's how practicing lawyers are going to have to think. And we think about the constitutional limits of some of these doctrines, like the responsible corporate officer doctrine and so on. We think about that. But for lawyers, we say, the federal fraud crimes, so mail fraud, wire fraud, securities fraud, insurance fraud, you know, those yeah. are considered white collar crime. We'll also often use things like the false statement statute, right. which came up a lot um, before. We also use obstruction, 
we also um, use aiding and abetting and conspiracy. The conspiracy. So it's about the him. crime, not the person. Right. Okay. So that's it. But soci. But Sutherland was, was sociologists break it into different other things. They have things called occupational crime. And that's when an employee, they consider this a kind of white collar crime. When an employee steals from a company, that's called occupational crime. Corporate crime, and from sociologists' points of view, is, is about when the corporation cheats the public, right? Right. Sutherland wanted to talk, want, he was a sociologist, so he didn't even care whether there was a criminal conviction. He doesn't, he's not thinking about defamation. He's not thinking about proving every element beyond a reasonable doubt. He wanted to study white-collar crime, the behavior of the, the wealthy and powerful and corporations doing things that were harmful, maybe civil and regulatory violations, maybe involved in actual fraud but not being prosecuted. He wanted to study that world and that phenomenon as a sociologist, and he didn't want to be hemmed in by needing to have a conviction on the books. Got it. And what he would say is when we study the mob, when we study organized crime, sociologists don't only look at the guys who went to jail. Right. 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 Okay, so this is this is why when you say to me, what is white collar crime? Who are you asking? Right. Now the hard part of this is you're you're being very concrete. You say you weren't at the outset, but you want to know bottom line, here's my hypothetical. Is this guy sitting at his computer a white collar yeah. criminal? What I would, the way I would turn that around is, is he going to be counted and who's doing the official counting? Fascinating. Okay. Got right? it. Yeah. So Sutherland was complaining about the counting. The, 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 the main counting of crime in the United States is done by the, the FBI to the Uniform Crime Reports. Am I getting too much in the weeds? No, 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 no. Finish the definition because then I want to get to the injustice and the cost. Uh, Go ahead. Finish the this stuff, because it's like this weedy stuff utterly fascinates me because okay. it's part of me, you know, I want to, you know, I really want to dig into this. So the, so you, the Uniform Crime Reports is something that the FBI has been putting out um, since the early 20th century in Southern complaint about it. So Uniform Crime Reports are data on crime. So like arrests and um, when you make a criminal report to reporting entities. So this would be the police stations. Sure. Um, college police, right. Indian tribes, the FBI, you name it, it's like thousands of them. Right. And they, they annually report, but they gather these statistics and they, they have a they have a code. They're gonna say, what is this crime? And there's a catch-all, everything else. In a report written by the FBI back in 2010 about white collar crime reporting, they admitted that the UCR doesn't really capture it well because they only have like th- three things. They have like fraud, embezzlement, and I think there's like um, there's like um, one more one more category than right. everything else. Kind of. So, you know, if you believe that your broker cheated you, if you have a, a, a you know brokerage account, or you were with Robinhood, you're not going to walk down to your local police station. You're probably not going to report it to the FBI. When right. Robinhood or have you got investigated by the SEC, that's never even in the UCR, is it? Right, right. So it's so it's wildly underreported. And then, but the best place, so the best, the most accurate place, and when you see people reporting, um, like Syracuse University has a report about white collar crime statistics. Whenever you read the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, what have you, and they say white collar crime enforcement is up or down, what they're relying on is this, is what Syracuse University extracts from the Department of Justice, and they put out an annual report of U.S. attorneys, all the cases that they right. bring. Right. But 
sometimes you'll see them say, oh, you know, it's so much higher than ever since they've been reporting. But if you actually look at year by year, I looked at every single report, of course I did, <laughs> they've changed categories for what buckets of statutes they put under white collar crime and right. which ones they so they don't put money laundering like under white collar crime. They put it somewhere else under like regulatory. Okay, so so for me, it's a huge apples and oranges problem. But if I had a job at the Department of Justice, I would be very interested in trying to make this stuff kind of uniform so we can have a better sense of this crime by crime and at least agree upon what should be in the buckets. And then in terms of policy, going back to status, I think that we should be collecting, which we don't, the amount of money involved. Well, we collect the amount of money involved in the crime, but we don't collect anything about the demographic of offenders of crimes in UCR, except that the, I think they collect the race and the gender, but they don't collect the assets Wow. or the status, right? So I want to, I can't measure this. I got it. I don't know. Right. It, it. So, so the answer to your question is it's mostly fraud. Yeah. Um, Committed by the most powerful is what I would say. It sounds like definition of white collar crime is not unlike the definition of free speech or establishment or originalism or anything else. Um, so you're, right. the, the, the shocking injustice and unseen cost. Give us a couple shocking injustices or what do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, to me, the shocking injustice seems to be the way the wealthy and well-connected and often sometimes large businesses um committing that they're able to gain wealth and power by cutting corners and committing out white crime. And all they have to do is sort of pay a fine, kind of like a speeding ticket and move on. Right. Um, and it's really, to me, it's the recidivism that bothers me. And to be clear, I am a business law scholar. I think corporations do good and sometimes they do badly, just like real people. Right. I'm not against people. I'm not <laughs> against people, corporate people. And they are people under, <laughs> under right. various yes. law. Um, and sometimes they're an association of individuals, depending on what day the Supreme Court yeah. is ruling on yeah. identity, yeah, identity issues. But so I'm I'm not against business, but I don't think I don't think just like the extremely wealthy and well-connected people, very large and powerful corporations can sometimes get away with things and harm the public. So the great the best example to use is a company like Purdue Pharma, who is a repeat offender or HSBC. Some of these companies mentioned in the book who, you know, even if they in, in Purdue Pharma's case, after they were the company pleaded guilty to a felony, I think it's either 2006 or 2007, I often get the year wrong, involving the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. And they pleaded guilty to a felony, you know, it's under um, 21 U.S.C. 331 and 333, a felony. Um, and then two senior officers of the company pleaded guilty to the corresponding misdemeanor, which misdemeanor would come with a potential prison sentence of up to a year, right? And no prison sentence. And this is the opioid. This is the opioid stuff, I assume. The opioid stuff, right? They yeah. misbrand. They mislabeled. Right. Um, you know, uh, that's that's what you get them for for um, oxycontin, and right. they also were pitching it um, in a way that made it sound like it was less addictive. It was a it was a pressure campaign, not dissimilar to the subprime mortgage, right? Examples where there was. Um, it was obviously highly addictive. 
They were pushing this narcotic for uses it should not have been used for. And they helped institute, even though they're now a smaller market player, helped institute tremendous addiction on opioids. And then when there was a crackdown, people switch over to the street so, drugs. And- so Jennifer, one quick one quick story about this yeah. that, that I, I, to this day, kind of makes me shiver. Um, I was once, years, years ago, when litigation first began, at an event where I was sitting next to a lawyer for one of the companies that was involved in the opioid crisis. And this was a big firm lawyer. This lawyer was so adamant that these drugs really weren't that addictive. And he was giving me this entire song and dance about how people use these in hospitals all the time and they walk out and they're not addictive, you know, um, every day in America. And, and this, which we now know is really beside the point and not true because we know they knew it was addictive. We know their memos show this. And it made me think, you're why, you're why people hate lawyers because th- this caused so much harm and you're still in denial. And you're still, I mean, you could say your client doesn't deserve this or that, but you're denying something everyone knows to be true, which is these drugs are really addictive. I worked for a client. Uh, I worked at one time for um, CUC, which became Sendent. My senior management went to federal prison. And when that happens, um, you learn that you never, you're not there to substantiate right. the facts you're going to tell you. Right. And if you don't believe them, you shouldn't work for them. But you're, you know, if you're not a scientist right. and you're not involved in these studies, you know, that's not your job. Right. And I would never say, I mean, I would not, I mean, I don't want to work for a client who who commits um, what they end up doing securities right. fraud or whatever they were doing. Right. I mean, that's I was a marketing lawyer. I did. I only became interested in securities fraud because of <laughs> that. Um, when you um, said they went to prison, I'm assuming part of the injustice of our current system yeah. is that very few white collar criminals actually go to prison. And it used to be right. Like this, like the chairman of the company I worked for, Walter Forbes. They tried him three times, two hung juries, and then they convicted him and right. he was sent to. But that's the I mean, exception, right? That's the exception, not the rule. Well, it used to be like, and he was an early accounting fraud kind of person, right? After Enron, if you look at the numbers, and I put some of the, the data in the book, yeah. um, there was an effort um, at that time to, I guess that would have been G, George Bush, George W. Bush administration to, you know, there was an Enron task force. Andrew Weissman was part of that. Right. And there was accountability. And, you know, things really did change, I would say, you know, right around the time, you know, when it started to involve, um, when it involved, sort of involved the banks. Yeah. You know, maybe it was the complexity, but it was even in the, um, you know, in the in the saga, I, I include it in the book that you might remember, you know, I call it about the, the, the you know, the kindergarten and the, the preschool yeah. and the bankers sagas. I mean, the stuff about, um, you know, brokers, um, you know, having conflicts of interest and recommending buys or not lowering their ratings on stocks because the parent company wants to do underwriting for that same uh, issuer that that kind of thing happening is kind of like the worst thing like that's exactly what the securities laws were designed to prevent and punish you know and the people kind of got away with that so that there's there's a there's a popular cliched kind of thing that goes around the internet or the places that go ahead go ahead i'm sorry that nobody of any nobody who had a major role nobody went to jail for the 2008 financial crisis of all this wrongdoing that was the, is that a true statement i don't know is that a true statement well, if you say nobody um that's not true but if you say no bank executives there's only one bank executive in the united states went to jail and jesse eisinger 
um, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning reporter from ProPublica, who also wrote the book um, Chicken Chip Club. In connection with that, had a piece in the New York Times. We can't say that word on this podcast. No, I'm kidding. I'm joking. Well, I actually did. I actually was worried I couldn't say that word because I had to interview him for book TV. And I was, <laughs> I was so worried about it. You, know? you can't say that on the real radio, but I don't think you have a kind of. It's fine. Like, it's fine. It's, I just yeah. won't show it to anybody in Georgia State's administration. Go ahead. Okay. You can say Chicken S Club. Yeah. Um, he wrote about the guy named Kareem Sarah Geldon. So this is a banker who grew up in Michigan, who was from Egypt, and it was working for a foreign bank, it might have been Credit Suisse, in London. And he went to prison. Okay. That's it. And if you compare the other countries, if you compare it to Iceland in particular, if you compare other countries across the globe, Ireland, um, you know, bankers, big bankers who were um, in charge of entities that were engaged in, in, in um Fraud. And the of right and fraud pleaded guilty or were tried and went to jail. And, and for me, what's really hard about it is, you know, you'll hear people say, "Well, I'm sure if there were cases to be made, they would have been made." And I say in response, "Why?" And it, just to be clear, I'm not trying to invite defamation. I'm asking questions. I'm not making accusations here, but I'm asking, why was it that Angela Mozilla settled? civil charges with the Securities and Exchange Commission in connection with securities fraud? Right, but I'm asking why were there no no federal uh, why were there no um why did the Department of Justice not bring criminal charges things like Kerry Killinger I think he settled civil charges with the FDIC in connection with WAMU right Mozilla is countrywide you know I'm interested in how these were only civil cases is it really because the, it's really hard to prove mental state beyond a reasonable doubt do they think they didn't have enough evidence you know and what bothers me about the question, that question is a lot of people asked it, and I don't know if you saw this in the book or you remember, but the, the head of enforcement of the Department of Justice um, at the time went on um, public television, I think it was, or was it actually CBS? It doesn't matter, it was on television and was asked that very question. And it's sort of, why well, didn't know big bankers go to jail? And he said, to the whole world, well, you know, these it's very difficult to prove these cases. And when you're proving fraud, he said, you know, we would have to prove that the victims um, relied on the bank's representations about these mortgage. And this made, you know, uh, Judge um, Jen Rakoff's hair go on fire. <laughs> right. Um, he wrote about this in the New York Review of Books. I right. mentioned this. And, you know, fraud is not an element that the government has to prove in a criminal, I'm sorry, fraud. Reliance is not right. an element in a government's fraud case. Reliance can be an element. It's complicated in um, securities fraud, how that works. Um, but reliance is not an element the government well, has to prove. So what this led me to believe is, you know, this person, I'm not mentioning his name out of courtesy to him. He's not a stupid man. Right. And I think he'd been a corporate lawyer. If he wanted, if you really were interested in these cases, you would have people writing memos and you would say, what are the elements of these offenses? This is like basic issue spotting in law school. Don't tell me if you think you could or couldn't prove something. Tell me what is required under the statute, under the law interpreting that statute. Tell me the prosecution policy we have. Tell me all the cases and the jurisdiction we bring this. And then I will make a decision. He didn't even have the law right. So I don't think it was a priority, so honestly. To to the extent, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you, at the end, correct me if I'm wrong, to the extent that that there's a problem with not enough very serious criminals going to prison 
for the havoc, economic and otherwise, that they caused. Yet we have, I don't know the numbers, thousands, I'm sorry, hundreds of thousands of people in jail for minor drug possession, for example. Yes. I don't, I don't want to make everything about race. That's not what I do, although I, I am a big writer of, and you know, I think institutional racism is a major problem in our country. Yes. But is there a racial component to this? Because most of these white-collar criminals are white, I assume. Well, yes. And in fact, there's even, so there's two things. There's, a, there's sort of the sort of more simplistic way of saying there's two justice systems, which I can talk about. But even within white-collar enforcement, right. Sarah Gelden. It's someone with a Middle Eastern sounding name, yeah. not from the U.S. I, you know, so that is who gets this, right? There's so even what even within white collar criminal enforcement, it's sometimes easier to, or it seems it seems like sometimes the charges seem to be more directed at people who are not white. So right. there's that. In terms of the two sort of the divide, what Matt Taibbi, Taibbi wrote in his book, The Divide, or what we can think of the two systems of justice. Um, yeah, I mean. I I think about this is, you know, who can, you know, who can kind of get away that that every way along the path from commission of a white collar offense all the way um, through whether it gets, how it gets charged civilly or criminally, what a judge may do in terms of, um, evidentiary rulings, how a jury might react, um, and what the sentencing may look like, is there's going to be some aspect of, we might say it's um, unconscious bias, right. or, right, but it's also all, a lot of this is about power, and with, you know, whiteness brings that kind of power, because, you know, you look at Cy Vance when, you know, he had, um, you know, here he is, a district attorney, has all of a Manhattan in his purview. And who does he bring, the, the, the bank he brings the case against? Right? Do you remember this, do you no. know this docu- PBS documentary? No. It's called Abacus Bank, not the hedge fund Abacus. At, you, there's a documentary, on, I think it's a frontline one, on Abacus Bank. I mentioned them in the book. It's, he brings, that's the one bank he prosecutes after the financial crisis. Right. And a lot of, he, he, he takes the staff away who worked there? They were in like, in like a chain gang. They were chained up and marched to Jeez. be arrested. Right. This is, doesn't happen at Goldman Sachs. Right. Okay. Right. Right. Fabulous Fab. That didn't happen to him at Goldman. What you know? What right. You, so. So that and but then ultimately they're acquitted. The senior management was acquitted in this in this particular. They were saying it was mortgage fraud. Um, and it was not actually part of the whole. It was just, it was a kind of a more small time accusations of mortgage fraud and falsifying documents and no one defaulted on their loan. Wait, 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 there's more though. So that's one piece within the white collar crime piece. But then in terms of the two worlds, um, you know, George Floyd was initially the police were called because he was allegedly trying to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. Let's assume that he even knew. Right. He ends up dead on the street. Similar um, Eric Garner, right. when he was selling cigarettes, you know, people think of this, you know, I always look through things, you know, I'm a follow the money person. I look at things through this white collar lens. He was committing tax fraud. Right. He was depriving the city of New York and the state of New York of the markup that they were deserving on cigarettes because they were coming in from a different state. That's his hustle. It's arbitrage. <laughs> 
And I think about who commits, you know, I think about someone like, you know, even just pick Donald Trump, pick anyone who's been accused of or being audited for not paying their taxes. They do not, no one walks up to them at their house, tackles them and chokes them. Right, right. And so, you know, I think about, I think about things in that, in that way. So I am wondering, I I am wondering, um, let me preface this by saying for the world that, that my dad was a pretty high-ranking executive at American Express for a long time. Um, and, and then he was actually CEO of a pretty big company. I, I'm just wondering about this based on kind of that experience. Not, not that he committed any white-collar crime. He didn't do that. Um, so if, if Cy Vance today wants to go after a big wig at a major American corporation, there is going to be tentacles to that. So that, that big wig is going to know other big wigs who are going to give money to the Democratic Party, for example. Or that big wig knows other big wigs who, ha- who, who Cy Vance has to deal with on a social basis, maybe, or whatever. Is, is any of that a problem? Or, or, cause, because, I, you know, at, at one point, my dad's world was pretty small, but in one sense, but very large in another, in terms of the connections, you know, across economic and legal and banking and government offices. Right. We could talk about Cy Vance, or we could also talk about the Southern District of New York, the federal prosecutors in that jurisdiction. I don't think, you know, if you're an assistant U.S. attorney and you're, you know, a couple years out of law school, you're going to walk in to your boss's office and say, you know, ex-CEO, I think we should try to bring a case against them without having really done some serious research. And I think, you know, the... But even, but even if you do, but Jennifer, even if you do the research, might there come a point when the leadership in the office goes, look, we're not going to touch this person. It's just too hard, too complicated. For, I mean, well, for I, not for legal reasons, but for, so, for interactive reasons. I heard from a former – I heard from, um, I heard from um, a former governor who worked in the um, – a Republican who worked in the um, Department of Justice – when Ed Meese was there. Is Ed Meese still alive? Yes. By the way, don't say it that way because I worked for Ed Meese's Justice Department. So <laughs> it's not that it's not that far in the past. Um, I didn't mean it that way. I'm just thinking it's about okay. defamation. Let me cut that out. I know somebody who is I'm who kidding. worked in the department. Yeah. And he went in and the, and the person at this at the at, at the person who was the attorney general said, No, no, we can't go after that guy. He's a friend of ours. Right. That kind of thing. I'm assuming that happens all the time. I don't know if it happens all the time. Yeah. It was apparently more explicit under this particular attorney general. Right. I don't know. Well, no, I mean, but, but, but on, on a serious note, though, I do. You don't even have to, right. I mean, but 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 even even writing this book. Yeah. In the press, I have a section on Trump. Yeah. It's heavily footnoted. My book yeah, it was vetted through. I'm a lawyer, but lawyers still vet this. And every claim you make about a person who's still alive, sure. you, whether they were powerful or not, you have to carefully vet it. But the stuff about Trump, like triple vet. Well, he's so litigious. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it's the same. This is this idea. Plus, what I do wonder, I have to be so careful. You know, there are people who seem tough on Wall Street, let's say. They've had certain roles right. in New York, let's say. And they're really tough on Wall Street. And then you wonder, why is this just a civil settlement instead of a criminal one? And then right. suddenly, years later, 
they're caught with a prostitute. I'm not talking about anyone in particular, but I'm actually talking about the book talks about this kind of mutually assured immunity. Yes, that's that what I was trying to get to. Yes, 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 yes. yes. I don't know. I don't, you know, say, so is it a problem? You know, I'm. I like to be um, descriptive more than I like to be normative. Actually, I don't know. I guess I like that's, that's is that a lie a little bit? I mean, <laughs> I'm being just you know we we you, we're kind of saying well this happens and the question is is it wrong that you know I don't want to have a society where we lock everyone up and put them in prison. No, but it's wrong. Time. But but it's wrong to make criminal prosecution decisions based on personal relationships. Yeah, it's wrong to decide to prosecute or not decide to prosecute based on political yeah. connections or personal relationships, yeah. period. And someone like Roosevelt, FDR knew that. And it's it's critical. And it's also critical, you know, to recognize the way in which it's how easy it is in, you know, the criminal justice system to just go through the sort of everyone plea bargains, people who don't have money, just to make this. Yeah. Because if you don't plea bargain, you could be, what was that kid who was in prison? Yeah. For years, what yeah. I, you know, even if on a plea bargain, if you can't even pay for bail, you might be in prison longer than your sentence ever would have been. Uh, so to me, yeah. that's the, to me, it's it, it's it's the under enforcement um, and the under prevention of predatory white collar behavior alongside the the other world where you mess up when you're young right. and your future. It, it does, ruined. it does kind of, I've had actually a few, Clark Nelly from Cato and um, a couple other guests who have talked about the plea bargaining problem in our country. Again, I'm not an expert on criminal procedure, but it does feel crazy to me that we put people in jail for, for 10, 15, 20 years all the time through plea bargaining. That's really, that's really plea coercion. Yeah. But the really rich don't have to go through that. And that's just wealth going through, you know, the entire system. I want to shift gear. We got to talk about this forever. We don't have forever. I want to shift gears to something a little bit lighter just for a moment. Right behind you is a poster about the tax march on Washington, D.C. Um, and I'm, I, I'm so proud of you for doing that. Why don't you tell everybody? Yeah. Why don't you tell everybody what that was? I would tell you uh, what that was and what this poster is. The poster was designed actually by my spouse, who's an artist, and his friend, who's a graphic designer for some major magazines. Nice. Um, what he did is he went in and helped us. Um, Whenever anyone in any city or town was doing a tax march, we customized it all free. Wow. And I'm just emailing it to them. This is no, no I'm not one of the, I'm not like some, you know, I had, I don't want to name them, but some, you know, efforts where people made millions of dollars, you know, fighting Trump. Yes. There was money by me made, you know, on this. Anyway, so this was March 15th, um, 2017. And what it was is, um, after Trump was elected, I started using Twitter more. I had not been a big Twitter person. You are now. And, uh, I know I wasn't, but I'm someone who's really interested in discourses of power. Mm-hmm. I was interested in law for yep. that reason. Yep. Um, and um, I had written the book, Other People's Houses, about the financial yep. crisis. It had come out in 2014. And my focus, I actually thought, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to be elected and maybe I'll get some kind of appointment. Sure. And, or you know, and I'll work, you know, or I'll just work inside of treasury. I had these ideas, you know, that I would do stuff and then we would continue the work of financial reform because I didn't feel that the financial system was stable or fair enough. Just right. So that's where my path was going. And then and then I'm watching the rise of Trump and he gets elected. And I realize that he is going to live on Twitter 
And if the most powerful person in the world is going to live there, I need to be in that space and be in that discourse. But by the way, so pause for one second. Speaking of Twitter and the most powerful person in the world, I had a debate, which I found interesting, on Twitter a few months ago. And I said, we got to stop calling the president of the United States the most powerful person in the world because right. it's unlikely that he is, in fact. First of all, China doesn't have checks and balances separation of power. Putin doesn't have checks and balance separation of power. Putin can destroy the world a thousand times over. China can destroy the world economically a thousand times over. I just hate the expression, but go ahead. Uh, some I people agreed, some didn't. <laughs> I completely agree with you, and I'm glad to be called out on it. I, th- I would say one of the more powerful individuals yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yes, okay. <laughs> he has... He has the levers of power, many levers of power in his possession that affect sure. people beyond the the, uh, the geographic boundaries of our sure. country. I didn't mean to interrupt. Sorry. Go ahead. No, thank you. I don't. I I, I do detest being in, imprecise when it's when it's unnecessary. You really so, would hate con law. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I should go back and tell you the argument I had with my professor with Larry Tribe about Bowers v. Hardwick. I apologized to him years later, and he accepted my apology about how arrogant I was. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you did it wrong. You shouldn't have used due process. You should have used equal protection. But not the reason. No, no, but I had a different equal protection theory that I don't need to go uh, okay. offline. We'll talk about okay. This. I like that. First of all, just having a fight with Larry Tribe is something I like since I once said publicly by accident that everything that's wrong about constitutional law you can see in Larry Tribe's treatise. I don't mind saying that today, but when I said it 25 years ago, publicly, by accident, it got me in trouble. Anyway, go ahead. Well, it's also funny. I also had Dirsch for criminal law, and I got in an argument with him. You know, <laughs> but I was knitting at the time. So, so the tax march. We got, we got, I want to hear about it. The okay. tax march. So what happened is I became, speaking of, you know, the intersection between money and the Constitution, I became yeah. particularly interested um, as soon as he was elected in the question of whether he was going to divest any of his personal right. properties due to both the domestic and the foreign emoluments clause. Right. And unlike some people, I actually had heard of these because I had read Zephyr Teachout's book, yeah. Corruption in America. Yeah. I actually, so, you know, I knew about this. I wasn't as familiar with the uh, domestic emoluments clause, which is essentially the presidential salary clause. Yeah. So I really thought this was something, I think I saw Peggy Noonan write about it. I thought this was something that would be a bipartisan effort that everyone would say, because the Republicans I grew up with and knew, I was raised by Republicans, hate corruption. Yeah, they don't exist anymore. Go ahead. That's not the same thing, right. But the crony capitalism and this how disgusting and crass this whole situation is. So I actually thought that somehow he'd be pressured to divest. So I was really on to the sort of emoluments thing. And I was really interested in the tax returns because to me, it's all, you know, show me the money. I understood that people didn't know with Nixon is one of the reasons why he faced resignation was because of the tax issues that he, the tax, um, taxes, past taxes he owed, not just the water rate situation. And I just thought taxes would tell the story, whether this guy, you know, to whom he was beholden, you know. So by the time December rolls around, we have some of the reports about Russia. And I became convinced that he was either witting or unwitting, accepted help from them. And I'm still convinced of that. And I think the Mueller report bears that out, even if it doesn't rise to the level of conspiracy. Me so too. That. We agree on that 100%. Yeah. Okay. But I do agree there wasn't enough to prove an agreement for this conspiracy yeah. charge or, yeah. uh, you know, what, anyhow. but as for obstruction. Okay. So come January, it's January. Um, my husband says to me, do you want to go to the women's march? And I'm kind of like, yeah, 
Feminism is what I used to do. Now I do money. I, it, like, oh, I, mean, I took my know. daughters to that. My wife, it was, I'm sorry, my wife and I took our daughters to that. It was great. Well, I did end up going. Okay. Because he's like, well, let's go out to, I live in Northampton. He goes, let's go out to Boston. And so I'm so glad he pushed me. We go out there. It was amazing being in that space. Agreed. And then at night on Twitter watching it. So then I'm just like, wow, thanks, Michael. Um, this is so great. And the next morning, I'm, I, I I didn't even see it on TV, but on Twitter, someone was saying that Kellyanne Conway had gone on TV and saying Trump was never going to show his tax returns. And to me, this is the it's still the holy grail. And I was like, well, that sucks. And I tweeted out that I look on the calendar and I go, oh, you know, April 15th is a Saturday. Why don't we have a tax march? Just <laughs> like they had a march. You're like... And then I sort of type this. I know some other people tweet it. I go to sleep and the next morning it's totally blown up. At that time, I probably only had 2,000 Twitter followers. Now I have like 128,000. Yes. But next, so this thing blows up and I'm like, oh my God. And people are like, let's not pay our taxes. And I'm like, no. No, no. <laughs> we need money. No, don't do that. So I was really having a heart attack that I was going to be encouraging lawless behavior and violence. And not a good taxes. look for, for, for a law professor. Right, so I'm hyperventilating, but then I realized there's this other guy, this comedian named Frank, who has also done this. And so I am a very much um, project-oriented person. And so I'm on the, I immediately find him. I, I follow him on Twitter. He follows me. So let's talk. Now, who is this? This guy, um, why am I forgetting Frank's last name? Um, Frank. Um, Don't worry about Sam it. Sanders is his handle, and I'm just yeah. completely forgetting. He'd also tweet this. So we connect. And then he connected me with some friends he had in D.C. who really had other connections. And then we together with that group found everybody who was trying to use Tax March as a handle, who were setting up tax marches in New York because people were springing up independently. And then we just offered some central support. We created a website. We tried to make sure people were going to act nonviolently. Right. We found a lot of people who could get us space. And then, you know, the next thing we knew, we're getting, you know, you know, Maxine Waters is going to talk at this thing. We right. have Trump in person. I'm using what's that thing called Slack? Like I'm doing all the stuff with the kids with Slack. Yeah. And this, this is from a tweet on January 21st. This thing actually happens. You know, hundred over hundred thousand people across the country. It was one of the. I was so thrilled. It's amazing. And and, and well, Jennifer, it was to get him to disclose his tax return. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so the purpose of this there were two purposes. The main purpose is to say to Trump, "Show us your taxes. You made the promise. We want to right. see them." The other purpose, some of the groups were thinking, and it's continued now as an entity to talk about tax fairness and tax justice. So tax march continued. I'm on the board, but I'm not really involved. But I, you know, I go to, I, you know, the regular meetings as an advisory board. But they've been doing things like they they were against the um, tax cut that happened yeah. in 2000, end of 2017. Right. And they're still very interested in issues. They work sometimes with the patriotic millionaires and other groups interested in tax fairness right and also you know so that kind of that, that kind of work they do now but yeah but trump did not of course voluntarily share his taxes but they were shared by mazers anyway right so, so also seen them anyway through the new york times right? right well it's an amazing thing you did and uh you should be incredibly well, proud of it it really honestly was this it was a grassroots effort and these really smart young kids in dc that i connected with but I mainly connected with them because since people were going to associate me with this thing, I didn't want it to be a disaster. Right. So I stayed. Oh, it was Frank Lesser. That's his last. Oh, yeah, Lesser. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, let me, I, we have like five minutes, but I want to ask a really specific question 
that's going and, and, and this could be well, this could be the most ignorant question I've ever asked on 27 episodes, but I'm going to try. So Trump is accused, my understanding is, he's accused of valuing his property differently for different purposes. For purposes of getting loans, he values his properties high so that he has a good credit rating or something like that. But for purposes of actually paying taxes, he, per, he values his properties low to pay less taxes. I know that's a gross oversimplification. But is that kind of what's happening with Vance in New York and, and, and at least part of that problem? And we only have a couple minutes, but am I close there or is it? Well, you use the word accuse. Yeah. And certainly Michael Cohn has accused him of that yeah. under oath. Well, so is the New Republic and the New York Times because I've read those pieces. What? So is the New Republic and the New York Times. But Vance himself, you know, the grand jury that Vance is working with yeah. has not indicted. Yes, yeah, sure. Right? And we have those seen in the context of the filings in connection with trying to get from Mazers. Right. We've seen that he's investigating this. So I just want to be really clear. Sure, sure. Yeah. But yes, so the topic of investigation seems to be exactly what you're saying, um, that there could be... Um, there could be some bank fraud. Right. There could be um, this business statute of type fraud. There could be insurance fraud. Right. Yes. And yep. that's not advance, but we also have the tax. It's not clear to me. It seems like the civil tax fraud investigation is still being done by the New York State AG. Right. Right. This is an interesting jurisdictional. Well, the question I was going to ask, and we'll have to close with this, and this has been great. Um, let's say, let's say, hypothetically, totally hypothetically, that Trump did kind of what we just said, which we don't know, but that he did value prop or probably his accountants, not him, but but people working for him valued his properties differently for different purposes, for the purpose of financial gain in ways that were violating the law. That sounds like something to me that probably happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, it feels like the kind of thing that the government does not really go after. And I did read pretty documented and detailed reports in the New York Times and New Republic suggesting that kind of financial crime is really hard to prove, sadly. Is that is any of that true? So I guess, I'm not, so it depends if we're talking about at the federal or state level. Here we're talking about the New York state crime. I mean, I think everything with the hardest thing to prove around any of this is um, the mental state here. Yeah. And I have not examined the specific statutes in New York. I have looked at them for the purposes of statutes of limitation. Um, running, and I am concerned because there's like a two and a six yeah. for some reason, and so it's like when they should have two years. It's, I think some of the stuff, the six years has passed from the event, but it's two years from newer should have known, and maybe they're going to use the trigger of when they got the tax returns. It's not clear to me about the statutes of limitation, right. but certainly to the extent you've got to prove that he acted in some way that was knowing or willful, and again, I don't know the specific language or what the cases are. You know, it might be difficult, but right. remember, it's all going to require Weisselberg probably flipping or some smoking gun documents. Right. Um, you know. Gosh, I so hope I, I hope somebody flips. Just for the record, <laughs> I hope somebody flips big time. I expect somebody's going to go to jail. I yeah. doubt it will be Donald Trump, yeah. but I think there will be. You know. Yeah. We'll have to see. I think Georgia is more promising, honestly, but that's okay. another conversation. Yeah, I, I agree with that, and that is another conversation. Jennifer, thank you so much for doing this. And, and I know we just we just t covered the tip of the iceberg, but I want to say the work you're doing, from what I can tell and what I've read, is really important. And 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 thank, oh, thank you, thank I, you for I, doing it. Yeah.
and, and I do think, from what I limited my limited knowledge, that the whole issue of what I wore a white shirt today to make the point that and I think it's the first time I've done that white collar crime, I think, is probably infected a lot with whiteness. And that's a big part of the problem. And, and I agree. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Have a great day. You too, Jennifer. Thank you.